Well, good morning, Applewood family. Those who are guests with this morning, we're glad that you are here. Uh, you know, as, as difficult as I make it, I uh, try to be as obtuse as possible for Phil and Allie to figure out where I'm going on a Sunday. Uh, <clears throat> they, uh, they hit it right on the mark this morning. Grateful for, for them and their, uh, their seeking the Lord as they put our worship together. You know, there are a couple of announcements that I hope that you see in the bulletin or perhaps saw on the screen if you were here early enough. Delighted to read this week, and I don't know where I have been, that Covenant World Relief, which is uh, part of the the mission arm of our denomination, uh, is at work with a partner ministry in Syria. Uh, They have been there for several months, and they are working with uh, the, the folks who are still there. They're working with refugees who have fled the country Make sure that you see that in your bulletin. You can go to the website, find out some more information about that ministry. Vital ministry in these days, and uh, just so blessed to know that they're there. Tim and Rosie Hughes, many of you know, are in Belize today. Somehow they got away on this mission trip, and we didn't pray for them. So I told them that we would have info in the bulletin this morning as a reminder to be praying for them. And uh, let's just take a couple minutes in and pray for them as we begin this morning. <clears throat> Father, what an honor it is to, to surrender all, to live in response to love that is so amazing and so divine. And one of the ways that your spirit calls us to do that from time to time, different in different people's lives, but to, uh, to take off and to to go to a faraway place and to spend time in a place that is not our norm, in conditions that we are not used to, with people that we do not know and that perhaps don't even speak our language. And so we are grateful this morning for Tim and for Rosie as they have gone on this trip to Belize. And we ask that you would bless their efforts and the efforts of the team as they seek to do evangelism, as they seek to do uh, medical relief, as they are involved in construction projects, as they minister to the children of Belize through a vacation Bible school program. Lord, we are grateful that you are there, you were there awaiting their arrival, that your spirit has been at work And we ask that they will find you and your presence and your strength sufficient for every need. Thank you so much for who they are. Thanks for the blessing that they are to us as church family here. We look forward to their return. We look forward to to being challenged and stretched in the ways that uh, you have grown and stretched them. So we commend them to you and uh, ask that your spirit would remind us in these days to pray for them until their return. In Christ's name, we offer them to you. Amen. 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 Well, welcome to this fifth Sunday of Eastertide. That's the, uh, the name on the historic church calendar that is given to this 50-day period between Easter Sunday and Pentecost. And if you know the New Testament accounts, you might remember that it's, it's kind of a waiting time um, <clears throat> Jesus has, has come out of the tomb and uh, he shows up and meets with his followers at different places and different times. But there, there is kind of this sense among the followers of Jesus, well, well what now? What next? And uh, we are told <clears throat> in Acts that Jesus 
said to them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, Jesus said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Have, Have any of you, this is a silly question probably, but have you ever Googled ridiculous or absurd warning labels? If you, if, you, you need, <clears throat> if you need a good laugh, it is so worthwhile. Here are three of my favorites. There are many out there. This is a warning label on a package that contains iron-on T-shirt stickers. It says, do not iron while wearing shirt. Yep. On a clothing washer is this warning. Warning, high speed, no, high spin speeds. Do not put any person in this washer. This may be one of my favorites right here. On a toilet bowl cleaner, safe to use around pets and children, but it is not recommended that either be permitted to drink from the toilet. Just in case you were thinking about letting your children take a swig from the toilet. Folks, those labels exist for a reason. You know, we are just not as bright as we might like to think. So a few verses later, after Jesus has told them to wait in Jerusalem, he then says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus wants them to wait until the Spirit of God comes and fills them with the power that they will need to live for Jesus' sake. Wait until the Spirit comes. Don't do anything until he comes. Okay, kind of a true confession I read those words and I often sort of hear this warning label there. You know, Jesus wants them to wait for the Spirit to fill them because he knew that it would be the filling of the Spirit that would provide the power that they needed to live the life to which he was going to call them to live. I can imagine Jesus thinking something like, oh man, I love these guys but they're not too bright sometimes. And I know what they're going to do. I'm going to leave. They're going to grab their swords and they're going to go swashbuckling their way through Jerusalem and they're going to just make all kinds of messes. And they're going to get themselves killed for all the wrong reasons. So, Romans 12, 1 through 2 or one through three, excuse me, on the screen. Let's just, from where you're sitting, let's read this together. It is our series text. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment 
in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. What a text. Paul wants the believers in Rome, as we have learned, and the believers at Applewood Community Church and everyone else who reads the letter. He wants those believers to demonstrate in the lives that they live that they understand the remarkable truth of what God has done for them through his son. And he sees that as being a life that is lived out in what he feels is the only appropriate, reasonable response to God's amazing love and grace. Lay down control of our lives, live as offerings to God, surrendered to the leading of the Spirit. And here I need to point out the obvious. You know that it's my spiritual gift. So, even though we find ourselves in this Eastertide season, this, this waiting period between Easter and Pentecost, we are not the ones who are to be waiting. The story has concluded. We know the end of the story. We know that the Spirit has come. We have been filled with power to be witnesses for Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. I'll say that again. We have been filled with power to be witnesses for Jesus. Thank you for waking up that time around. The very same reason that the Spirit of God filled those first followers to be witnesses for Jesus. We have been filled in order to, we've been learning, to offer our bodies. Remember, Paul's very specific about that word. Offer your bodies because the body is the thing that lives out the intention of the heart and the spirit of the individual. What our bodies do and say belie what it is that we really believe. And so Paul is saying, make sure that your bodies, your words and your actions are living out an appropriate response to the amazing truth of what God has done for you in Christ. And that, by the way, is a living sacrifice. And we learned last week that the greatest challenge to being a living sacrifice will always be me. It'll always be you as you strive to to live and to surrender your life to be a living sacrifice. Self always gets in the way. May the love of Jesus fill me, we sang. As the waters fill the sea, him exalting, what's the next line? Self-abasing? Oh, no. This is victory, says the writer of that classic old hymn. Him exalting, self-abasing. I don't know about you, but that's just not the first thing that comes to my mind when I wake up in the morning. It's more along the lines of, man, I've got to get coffee. And I hope none of the other people in my house have used all the fresh beans that I just roasted. It starts that early. Can you relate? Him exalting, self-abasing. That's just not what we are wired to do. Each of us is born with the sin nature that cries out for self-exaltation and self-preservation. There is nothing in us that wants to give up control 
and our perceived rights to live as we choose. And Paul sees this as such an important theme. Listen to his words as he describes this to the Galatian believers. Many of you know these verses. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is talking about a theological transaction that has happened that impacts the way in which he lives his life. The crucifixion of Jesus counts as his death. He was the one who was sinful. He was the one who deserved to die on the cross. The sinless one died for the sin-filled ones. And Paul is saying God counts his righteousness to the Corinthian believers. He said his righteousness has been counted as our righteousness. And so as a result of what God has seen fit to do through his son, Paul says, I consider myself and this sin nature that is constantly wanting to exalt self and preserve self, I consider that as dead. But it's never a one and done deal. It is all day long, every day, in everything that we do, in everything that we say, because the altar, contrary to the altar in the temple in the Old Testament era, where the animal was brought and slaughtered, there, there is not a singular location for the living sacrifice. The location is daily living. And that's a real bummer. Because it'd just be a whole lot easier to, you know, just do the kind of the, the one and done commitment in the morning and then walk out of my house and live life the way that I want. Paul's saying, that is not an appropriate response for someone who really understands what Christ has done. Living sacrifice is not a fixed place. It is daily living. It's every single moment of every single day. It's in the midst of circumstances, all the circumstances, the joys and the sorrows, the things that are easy, the things that are difficult. And it's always, always, always in the context of relationships. You know, I, I do pretty well with this self-sacrificing thing until I interact with a person. Can you relate to that? Because suddenly that person, by virtue of what they say, by virtue of what they do, by virtue of the way that they look, by virtue of who or what they represent, I, I find these responses inside of me, responding to all of that as this person walks into the horizon of my life. To be a living sacrifice is to constantly face the question, me or others? Who is this about? Do I make this situation about me? Do I make this about my rights? Do I make this about my comfort, my success, my reputation? Or do I make this life that I'm living and this moment in my life right now, do I make this about a life given to others? Do I glorify me in the circumstances, in the daily activities of my life? Or do I glorify God by giving myself 
to others as Jesus gave himself for me. And Paul believes, Paul believes that it all starts with thinking. As the Spirit of God indwells his people, the Spirit of God then gives us the ability to think correctly, specifically how we think about ourselves. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And so, as people filled with the Spirit of God, we have the ability to think correctly. And that starts with thinking about ourselves. We've learned in our text that, that Paul's, Paul's plea is that we, we not think according to the world's pattern. The world's pattern of thinking is always about self. It is always about self-promotion, self-exaltation. And Paul is certain that you can identify someone who thinks as a living sacrifice because their life, strangely enough, is characterized by a lack of concern for self and a focus upon others, concern for others, their needs, their situation, their circumstances. A living sacrifice lives for God's glory through loving and caring generously for others. And I just... That struck me this week. You know, it's one of those dumb moments that is so profound when you realize, so how do I show my commitment and my passion for Jesus? Well, it's going to show in my actions. And it's going to show most clearly, most visibly, in my actions toward others. Because others are always the problem. If you would just think and live and do like me, we'd have no trouble in the world. But, but it's, it's others. It's others that, that, that present that challenge to living sacrifice. So living sacrifice lives for God's glory through loving and caring generously for others. The focus of their life through the power of the Spirit is greater concern for others for themselves, and it will result in, in what I like to call a generous life, the giving away of ourselves, the giving away of our stuff, the giving away of our time and our energy, our resources for the sake of others, which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus did for us. You see the connection? Our motivation is fueled by those words in our Romans text, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. Look at the cross and see Jesus hanging there, forgiving those who did it to him, and let that be the motivation that drives you to live life as a sacrifice. That's why Paul, that's the way that Paul thinks. It's the way that that he is constantly teaching and exhorting believers everywhere. We find this in in his letters. Uh, Philippians is, I think, one of the the classic texts. Helps us understand 
how believers are to think like Jesus. It's where we ended last Sunday, and it's where we start this morning. So as we are continuing through our worship and preparing for communion, let's look more closely at what Paul says in what is probably a very familiar text to many of us about Jesus and his thinking. So let's stand together, shall we, and read from Philippians 2. Okay, here we go together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Wait a minute. Can we stop and talk about that? Because I don't know about you, but I don't really like that. Do nothing? That's Unfortunately, that's one of those places where the word nothing means, yeah, nothing. Okay, here we go again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord for us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Man, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, Paul says, and, and it's the same idea he's expressing to the Philippians as he has expressed in our Romans text where he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think of yourself through the mercy and the grace that God has given to you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, value or consider Others better than yourselves. That is the thinking of a person who understands what God has done and and lives as a sacrifice in response to such love and grace. When we consider others better than ourselves, we are beginning to live a generous life toward others. And that can only happen when those who are indwelled by the Spirit of God surrender their wills to the leading of the Spirit of God. Remember the the warning label. Wait, wait for the power. And so so live out this, this activity in the power of the Spirit of God. Otherwise, we'll be shaping and molding people into our images and our expectations and our preferred behavior versus listening to the Spirit to simply offer ourselves for the sake of God's glory to see what he wants to do in the life of an individual as a result of our openness and generosity toward them. And here, I think, is the key that that unlocks this door. In, in your relationships with one another, Paul has written to the Philippians and to us, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, has, have the same thinking, have the same, some versions will translate it as, as attitude. Either way is fine. Paul's point is that as the people of God, we need to think about ourselves in the same way that Jesus thought about himself. And then he explains that. Rachel, can we put that next text up? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so we might say, well, what was that? How did, how did that work? How do I think like that? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Okay, I want you to turn to someone nearby and ask them, what does that mean? And see what they think. Okay, we ready to share a little? Who's going to be brave and, and take a stab and lead us off? Knowing that this is Trinitarian theology, and if you mess up, that we burn you at the stake this afternoon following the worship service. But no pressure, Greg? <laughs> Filled with wisdom. No kidding. Yeah. Enormous. Or could I say it this way, Dixie? Yeah, the work is the surrender. You know? I, I can just, I can think of times in my life when, when the Spirit was prompting me for a conversation. The Spirit was prompting me to, to sacrifice to, to stop and help this person for whatever reason. I ignore it. I, I, you know, that stuff doesn't come from the wonderful natural goodness of my nature. You know, it's, it's the spirit that, that pops those things into my head, gives, gives me an opportunity. Preach on, brother! <laughs> Our desire for it. Okay, okay. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts? It often does. And here we are. Others, anything else? When we consider Jesus' equality with God, Lee, I like the spin that you gave it, you know, giving up those things that, that God is entitled to. Why was Jesus, can I ask, why was Jesus entitled to those things? Thank you. Because he's God. Because he's God. One of the non-negotiable truths that we affirm about the incarnation, you know, that, that theology that makes our head hurts, Jesus fully God and fully human. But that's one of the, the non-negotiable truths. We understand that he is fully God and he is fully human. The eternal son of God took on human flesh. But he was still the eternal son of God in human flesh. So the eternal son left the glory of heaven as the eternal son. He arrived in the form of a little human being, still the eternal son, lived his life as the eternal son, and when he left to go back to the Father, he was and he still is the eternal Son. 
My point is this, that when Jesus took on humanity, it did not change the true nature of who he was. It's one of the mysteries of the incarnation. He was truly God and he was truly human. He didn't add a little bit of humanity. He added all of humanity. He was 100% God and he was 100% human. It's safe to say that it changed his appearance. First time the eternal son had become a human, at least to that extent, so clearly that, that we see in the New Testament. Some of the theophanies in the Old Testament may have been the same. It changed his location. And taking on humanity, as Lee suggested, subjected him to some limitations that he did not otherwise have. But his status as the eternal son of God was never in doubt in the mind of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Are you with me? Your eyes are glazing over just a little bit. It didn't change who he was. And so the eternal son humbled himself. And I would say, because of his greatness, he was able to do that. The very reason that he was great was the very reason that he was able to humble himself as a human being. His status as the son of God never changed. Because he was confident in who he was. He was confident in the Father's care. He was able to live sacrificially for the sake of others and ultimately become the sacrifice for their salvation. It was because of who Jesus was that he opened his life to people and lived with generosity toward them. Jesus knew who he was. Even as a fully human being, he knew that he was the son of God. He knew that as a human being, his life was ultimately in the hands of his father. And as a result, Jesus took risk after risk after risk of opening his life to people who often showed him no respect for who he really was. Are you with me? They took his time. They inconvenienced him. They took advantage of him. They disrespected him. They lied about him. They lied to him. They called him names. They betrayed him. They deserted him. They did all the things that fallen human beings do to one another. All of the things that potentially people will do to us when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Generous living toward others is full of huge risk. Even in the redeemed individual, the sin nature will raise its head and will always encourage us to preserve self. Stay safe. Be careful. You know, measure your risks. That is the sin nature because we never know who's going to take advantage of us. We never know 
who will not appreciate us as we deserve to be appreciated. We never know who's going to hurt us emotionally, potentially physically. And, and, and we're quite certain that they're out to take our money, that they're out to steal from us. They're out to take away what is rightfully ours. Spoken like the sin nature that calls us to preserve self, exalt self, promote self. But in the midst of those thoughts, if we're listening closely, we will hear the words of Jesus. Give to the one who asks you. Turn the other cheek to the one who slaps you. Don't worry about what you will eat and drink and wear. For your father knows what you need. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up in heaven. Take care of those who are hungry and thirsty and sick and in prison, even if they are there because they deserve it. Because your care for them shows care for me, Jesus says. The first will be last. And the greatest will be the least. And on and on and on the kingdom of God values go to drive us nuts apart from the Spirit of God empowering us to live that way. Because the kingdom of God values are contrary to everything that has to do with the sin nature and fallen And Jesus lived all these things that he taught. Why? Because he knew who he was. He knew who it was that secured his human life. He knew that nothing would change his status as the eternal son of God. Once the son of God Always the Son of God. And he had ultimate trust in his Father to care for him. Nothing happened to Jesus that was not a part of the Father's plan for his earthly life. Guess what? The Scripture teaches us those who have put their faith in Christ, those who have trusted in Him and the work that He has done on the cross for their salvation, Scripture teaches that those God has given the right, the privilege, says John in chapter 1, to become children of God. And the children of God... Paul says to the Ephesians, have been given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm that Jesus has been given. He says to the Romans, the children of God are co-heirs with Jesus to the throne of grace. I don't know what that means, but man, does that sound cool. (laughs) Jesus himself said, the heavenly father knows the very number of hairs on your head. Have we ever talked about that? That's one of the most fascinating things ever. Did you ever see Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man? 
Do you remember that scene where they were in the care center and, and the nurse or the aide or somebody or some, something happened. They, they bumped into this hospital cart and all those tongue suppressors just scattered all over the floor, you know, and Dustin Hoffman looks down and goes, 349. That's how God sees the hair on your head. He doesn't spend his days doing this. I, I don't know why I told you that. I just think that. I think that every time. I just, <laughs> God inhabits the best qualities of autism. Absolutely. Absolutely. He never sleeps. The scripture teaches us. He never takes time off from his care of us. We could go on and on and on about the promises of God to his children and the way that Jesus lived out a life that was responsive to those promises. The question becomes one of, do I trust him? Have I I ventured out? Have I opened my life and, and found him? faithful. Doesn't mean that that I'm not going to experience the hurt. Doesn't mean that I'm not going to experience deceit and treachery and and cheating and, and, and unjust treatment. My goodness, those are the things that we seal ourselves off from. But he calls us as living sacrifices to live with the confidence that Jesus had in his father to take care of him in his earthly life. That is our challenge as living sacrifices. Do we talk about being living sacrifices? Or do we, do we live as sacrifices to, to bless others for the sake of our Father's glory? In view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, says Paul in our Romans text, offer yourselves as living sacrifices in view of what he's done and what he promises to do. Jesus did that. And he did that as a sacrifice for our sin. And he did that as an example of the power that we have to live when we surrender to the Spirit of God. God's generosity to us empowers our generosity to others. I love what Athanasius, if you've heard that name, one of the early church fathers in Alexandria, Egypt, about the 4th century, born late 3rd century and into the 4th century, he lived his life. Athanasius said, Jesus became what we are that he might make us what he is. Jesus became what we are that he might make us what he is. And so we, we come to the communion table, brothers and sisters in Christ, <clears throat> mindful of the elements, mindful of, of the symbols. Jesus became what we are that he might make us what he is told his followers as they shared that last meal together before the cross. Took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Brokenness, humility of Jesus 
the eternal Son of God in the flesh, given for us so that we might have the life that God intends for us in relationship to him. Jesus said, do this often and remember me. He took the cup after the meal and he said, this cup stands for the new covenant in my blood. In this cup, we are reminded of the abundance of God's forgiveness made possible through the shed blood of his son. So we come this morning to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus and to be reminded of the life of sacrifice that is the reasonable response to what he has done for us.